So um, I haven't mentioned it in a while, but I mentioned it a lot for a while there that I was a Bible quizzer in high school. Because I was voted most pop, no, not really. Um, <laughs> I was the kid who was in marching band and Bible quizzing and the science academic games team, and I did all of these, like, we'll just go ahead and say it, I did all these really nerdy things, right? Because who doesn't want to memorize large sections of scripture and then go jump on quiz seats that are weight sensitive so you know who jumped first and by how much? And I can tell you a story about how I'm totally not bitter 15, 20 years later that I lost one quiz by a thousandth of a second once. It's very sad. But none of that has anything to do with the sermon. One of the books that we memorized as Bible quizzers was John. And so John, uh, the beginning especially, that first chapter that we read this morning, it's this thing where you slowly start putting the pieces together of the story in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, about the Word of God and what the Word of God is. Because I don't know if you had my experience as a, a small kid in Sunday school, but I went to Sunday school and then we would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag and then to the Christian flag, and then to the Bible, which was referred to as God's holy word, which is true and correct. But if we read John chapter 1, what is the word of God? Jesus. Right? So it's, it's not the book. It's God himself embodied his word when he came to earth. Right? And so you get that passage from Hebrews, right? Where they talk about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It tells us it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and that the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes in the heart. Nothing in all creation can be hidden from God's sight. Again, you see that theme where the word of God is not the book. It's the incarnate God. That's the high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the one that is able to make us whole again. And so if you read through John chapter 1, not every scriptural narrative, not every salvation story in the Bible is about sin, evil, and then cleansing. A lot of them are. Not all of them are. Because there are a lot of salvation stories in the Bible. There are a lot of, there are four Gospels, for instance, that talk about Jesus and his sacrifice and resurrection. Not every single one of those narratives, not every time that Paul mentions Christ's death and resurrection, not every time it's mentioned in the Gospels, is it about cleansing of sin in particular. Because you notice in John chapter 1, it talks about, in the beginning was the Word. Everything that has life was made through him. Everything that exists doesn't exist without him. And that life brought light into the world. And he came to us and we rejected him. But through the word, we have been given the right and the ability to become children of God. Not of natural decision or husband's will or man's will in the NRC. Husbands was the NIV, I was not in high school. You know, but born of God. 
And so you have this story of salvation. You have the story of the gospel that doesn't start with how we messed it up. It just starts with just darkness. So when you look around and you see something that is dark, the gospel according to John 1 is that there is a word of God who is incarnate, who put on flesh, who came to bring light to every man and woman and child who was born, is born, and ever will be born. It's a story of an offer of adoption to all people. So the Gospel of John 1 doesn't start with the Romans road, for those of you who remember that. The little pamphlets that have all the verses from Romans that start with all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and work your way through. You know, that's one narrative that Paul put in the book of Romans, for sure. I'm not saying that's not good. I'm saying that there's more than one way that story is told. And I think that John 1 is telling us an important truth, that not only is it about you've messed up, but that's okay. God can sort of magically fix it for you. This is a story about adoption. This is, this is something maybe even deeper than having past misdeeds forgiven. This is about changing your identity. This is about changing who you are. Would you like to be a son or daughter of the creator of the universe? And it acknowledges that some of us will reject that. Some of us may walk away from that offer. But the offer is made nonetheless. And that's good news. And so we, we go through that story, and you kind, of get the, you kind of get the idea of why we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood of Jesus being the point of salvation, the point of the Gospels, because that's the example that was set for us in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, if you sinned, you had to take an animal, a, a goat, a bird, a, you know, sometimes you took whatever you had. You had to go and you had to take the animal, you took it to the temple, and you say, hello, priest, I have sinned. I have this goat, I have this bull, I have two bulls because I've sinned a lot this year. You know, whatever the case may be, <laughs> you know, and you bring the goat, and you bring the bulls, and you bring the birds, or whatever you can afford, and you say, okay, priest, I need to shed this blood so that the offering and the birch sacrifice, or whatever sacrifice you're making that day, some of them are green and oil, but the idea is by sacrificing this thing in my place, I can be made whole, and I need you to do it for me. So that's the, that was kind of the model from the Old Testament. So we read that forward, and we see Jesus coming as the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. The sacrifice made once for all, as Paul put it. You know, and so we see the idea of like, okay, yeah, so Jesus is fulfilling all of those old sacrifices. When they ask Jesus in Matthew, what about the law? He says, I have not come to abolish the old law but to fulfill it. Most Bible scholars agree John was written a little bit after the other Gospels. And so you maybe see a little bit of a progression in the way that the Gospel writers recorded what exactly it was that Jesus was doing. And they were writing maybe for different audiences. A lot of people agree Matthew is probably written for a mostly Jewish audience. And so for the writer of Matthew to say, hey, 
Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law was very important. Because Jewish culture, like following the law was how you kept close to God. And so for Jesus to say, I have fulfilled the law instead of thrown it out, that's significant. That's comforting. That is saying, hey, I am going to continue that relationship with God that you had already established. We're going to take that, and we're going to take that to the next level. You can be adopted into this family, and so can your Gentile neighbors, but I'm fulfilling the law that first brought you to the Creator. But then you get to John, and if John is a little bit later, Christianity spread outside Jewish circles pretty quickly. And so now you have this story where if you make reference to Old Testament sacrifices and the blood it's not going to be as recognizable, right? It's not going to be a language that Gentiles really are familiar with, which is why we have other ways of telling the same true story. We say, did you know that the beginning of all things, when everything was formless, before anything existed, there was the Word? And the Word was with God, and the Word, word was even was God. He was there in the beginning. That's the word that was made flesh in that Jesus guy you heard about. That pre-existing, always eternal, created everything. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. After coming to us and being rejected, he still offered us light and life for every man, woman, and child. Did you know that the creator of the world has offered that to you, Gentile? See, it's the same truth, but it's a different story. It's like when you tell a story to your friends at work, and you tell a story to your spouse, you might tell it a little differently. You emphasize the parts you think that they're going to identify with, the parts they're going to care about. You, you change which details to leave out because you know your wife doesn't care about the spreadsheet wrote, but your coworkers might, so you include it. You know what I mean? So it, it's the same true story told in different ways. And so that's why it's important when we read the Bible that we don't read it trying to come up with the one right way of telling the gospel. We don't write it so that we don't read the Bible so that we can walk into a room and go, hey, hey, Kellyanne, Mark, Janice, Elder, like everyone here, I have one way of explaining how much God loves you. And if we don't all agree on this one particular way of talking about it, then we're doing it wrong. Because that's limiting God. Just as Paul said, he became all things to all people, so that by all possible means he might save some. Of course God would do the same thing. Of course in the scriptures that we record the truths of him, we're going to say the same true story in all possible ways. So that by all possible gospels and writings and epistles, we can say as many as we can, because there will be something that lets you know the truth of how much God loves you. But this past week, I'm, I got distracted by the concept of blood. The question that kept coming up in my head was, what are you willing to believe for? I think the answer to that question says a lot about who we are. 
says a lot about how we see the world, how we see our neighbors. And for those of us that believe, it says a lot about our faith. Because you see, we, we come to a point where our culture is a very, very safe one. It's been a while since I've been afraid of real injury, right? I, I mean, the most dangerous thing I do is probably drive in my car, right? And that's, that's pretty safe if you drive well. You know what I mean? I, and so, like, we've we got this culture where we've gotten to the point where, okay, sharing my opinions might be dangerous because then people might say mean things about me. And we think that that's persecution. We think that that's really suffering. And I think maybe what we've forgotten is that there are people who bleed what they believe. There are people who bleed to protect their neighbors from harm. There are people who put themselves in harm's way for what they believe to be true. So the question in my head is, what am I willing to bleed for? For what am I willing to risk my safety? Because I believe it to be right and just. Maybe it's to protect children who are in danger. Maybe it's to protect family and friends. What if there are people who are starving? Would we leave for that? What, how much of ourselves are we willing to put into that solution and that provision and that protection for our neighbor that we may or may not know very well, but we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus didn't give the example of the guy who actually lives next door to your neighbor. He gave the example of the guy who lives in the next country over with a different religion whose practice of faith is offensive to you. Would we bleed for them? I think the answer for most of us, if we're being honest, is not nine times out of ten. And maybe at some point it's time to put our money or our blood and sweat and tears where we claim our faith is. Because when I read John 1, I see this, this coming into the light, this idea of Jesus who had become incarnate. And the example that's been set for us is a little bit over the top and ridiculous. Because every excuse I can think of for not giving of myself for someone else, in my head, there's a maybe honest conscience part of my brain that is going, if God can give up eternal heaven for a while and become flesh and to limit himself and take on the nature of a servant, what are you complaining about again? Somebody said new things to you? Somebody disagreed with you? Maybe they yelled at you on Facebook because you did the right thing? You poor child. Like, there's that corner of my brain that is like, 
aware that I couldn't be doing more. And I, I, I feel conflicted about that because on the one hand, I'm like, okay, there's always going to be more than you can do. Right? There, I have limits. There's only so much I can do. I don't want to do the right thing out of guilt. I want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, and I believe I'm called to do it. And so I don't particularly like that corner of my brain that is criticizing me. Because I'm not sure it has the right motives. But I'm also not sure it's wrong. Maybe even though it's not completely right, maybe it does have a point. And so I, I feel like I'm, I'm stuck because we, we see this example that we, we have set for us. We have the example of a God who came to earth, the Word made flesh, that you and I might be called sons and daughters of God. And that kind of radical, free gift kind of offering, like, hey, you are lost, I would like to find you and adopt you. Will you let me do that? With almost no preconditions, right? Like, there's no conditional statement there. To all who believe in him, to any who accept his name, you have the right to become a son and daughter of God. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and so this free gift, I find myself realizing how stingy I am when I go to give gifts to others. Whether it's gifts of my time or my support or my gift of protection and saying, hey, I'm standing next to this person. If you want to come at them, I'm here too. They are not alone. Right? Like someone's being mistreated at work, and instead of sitting there at your desk and going, well, at least it's not me. Maybe you stick your nose where it doesn't completely belong to advocate for justice. And a protective kind of justice, not a vindictive one. Because I think that if your blood is all completely inside your own veins, maybe there's work to be. And so the obvious correlation here, I appreciate it for bringing that up in prayer, looking for an end to violence and for cooler heads to prevail. Because I, I, I'll admit, one of the reasons this has been on my heart this week is because I've been disappointed is a kind word in some of the things I've heard and seen posted about some people who are hoping World War III, because they're pretty sure we're going to win, so that's a good thing. And I see that, and I go, Lord, have mercy. Really? And, and we serve the God who offers sonship and daughtership. Who offers adoption to all people of all nations. And you're excited about this? Lord have mercy. 
I realized something the other day that if you're in heaven long enough, there's probably a list of people in your life that you didn't really get along with and you maybe didn't even really like all that much. They're going to they're be in eternity with you. <laughs> and I realized that a long enough timeline. I think the love of God and my personal growth to being like Jesus I think that'll eventually win out. And even the people that irritate me now, even the people I feel offended by, or angered by, or wronged by, or the people that I have wronged, four or five thousand years into eternal life, I hope I've grown to the point, and God has had enough of an impact on us, to the point where I can go have a cup of coffee with anyone in there, all few billion of us, and had it in love, without reservation. Because it be like 33 years, it seems like a long time, that's my whole life. <laughs> Let's multiply that by a thousand. A thousand of my lifetimes from now, is it possible that God can change me to the point where I feel genuine Christ-like love? for every human God has ever created. I really hope so. And if that's where I hope I end up, can we start today? Can we start today by saying, God shed his blood to offer us this kind of adoption to all people, and so maybe, just maybe, I should drop the window. Maybe, just maybe, I should let go of the grudge, burn the root of bitterness, whatever metaphor you want me to use right here, but let's kill it dead. And there are some people that you may need to give some space until they stop stabbing you freshly each time, and that's okay. But don't you start. Because I think we are called to be better. And it's easy to point fingers. It's easy to say, well, it's their fault, or it's Trump's fault, or it's the Democrats' fault, or whatever you want to do. You can do that. That's fine. But it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. <coughs> so you stop. You stop attacking. Maybe keep a healthy distance. That's fine. But keep a healthy distance and pray for them. Pray for their benefit. Pray that God's will be done in their life. Pray for their redemption. And pray that maybe 3,000 years from now, in eternity, you can sit down with them and have a cup of coffee. And you guys can love one another. Because I think that, I mean, that's just straight up magical. I have a hard time imagining that for everyone who I feel is wrong to me. I'll be honest. Like, I'm, I'm trying. Like, God, help me get there. I kind of want to want that. That's where I'm at right now. I don't even necessarily want it right now, but I want to want it. Maybe sometime a couple thousand years from now we can have communion with people that right now we can't imagine sharing our table with. Come Lord Jesus.